The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Kernahan about her book, Teaching About Race and Racism in the College Classroom, Notes from a White Professor. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're here and that we get to talk about this really important topic that I know is going to be of great interest to the listeners. Before we dive into the book, I wonder if you would please tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, my name is Cindy Kernahan. I'm a professor of psychological sciences at the University of Wisconsin River Falls. I also direct our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. So um, I'm very interested in how people deliver teaching and how learning happens. Um, and I'm very interested in that, particularly with respect to things like race and racism and prejudice, but also social psychology more generally. That's my um, that's my specialization is social psychology with a concentration in racism and prejudice. And one of the things I love to ask guests is how you develop this interest. Can you take us back a little bit to your own educational journey when you were in college and grad school? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, when I was, for most of my life, I've been very interested in race and racism. I went to schools that were uh, more integrated than a lot of schools are now. And, and so I was able to, I think, get a lot of experience around race and racism growing up in Oklahoma City. And I was always interested in it. I wanted to understand it. I wasn't sure what that meant as far as being a college student and what I should major in. But I ended up majoring in psychology because I've always been so interested in people. And at first, I really didn't like it when I was taking the course, the general psych course as a first semester freshman, I really didn't enjoy it until I got to the last uh, chapter of the book, which was the social psychology chapter. And in that chapter, it was very focused as social psychology is on how people interact with other people, how we work in groups, how our social identities affect us. Um, And so that chapter really was interesting to me. And I decided 
around then that that's, I wanted to keep understanding those ideas. As a first gen college student, I really didn't know what that meant as far as a job would be. So uh, I was lucky to have a lot of good professors who helped guide me and helped me find the right path. Because as I said, no one in my co- in my family had gone to college. So I didn't really know what I should be doing to try to chase those ideas and understand them better. But they helped me to find social psychology. And so I went on to get a master's and PhD um, from the University of Missouri at Columbia. And that's where I really, really learned a lot about race and racism and group dynamics and intergroup uh, relations and all of that. And and so that's kind of how I ended up um, being an academic. And, you know, I never thought that I would enjoy or really, I didn't, I wasn't even particularly interested in teaching when I started. I was just interested in the ideas, the scholarly ideas. But then I just fell in love with teaching when I did it as a third year grad student and decided that I wanted to be at a teaching focused institution, which is where I ended up after I got my PhD. I ended up, I was lucky to get a position here at UW River Falls, which is a very teaching focused institution. Never intended to stay, but I'm still here because we are very teaching focused and it's allowed me to do the things that I'm most interested in. And that leads to my next question is, what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, it's such a cliched sort of thing to say, but what I wanted was a book that didn't exist when I started teaching. When I took this position as an assistant professor, Part of the reason why I took this job in particular was because I was told that I could create a course that I had always sort of been interested in trying to do. Well, since I I was a grad student, especially a a fourth and fifth year grad student, I had really wanted to develop a psychology of racism course. I thought that would be an important thing for undergraduate students to have. And so when I got the job here, they were all for that. There's a one uh, one course diversity requirement on our campus. And so they were excited to have a course that would fit into that requirement. And I wanted to do it, but I was really, really naive about what it would mean to actually teach a full course on this content. Um, not so much in terms of what the content should be, but how students would respond to it. And it was quite surprising to me. I mean, I got all the things that I wrote about, you know, I got resistance and a lot of emotional reaction to it. I mean, just what you would expect. And so as a young instructor, I was a little bit knocked back by that. Like what, you know, what, what, what can I do to help these students learn? And they, it wasn't a bad experience at all, but it was just sort of surprising. And so I wanted to write the book um, over many years of teaching and reading a lot of research. I thought, you know, nobody has really pulled together all of the advice for how to do this. And it's such a hard thing to teach. And I, I saw so many people that I really admired stop teaching it because they would just say, I have a good friend who's a sociologist. And she just said to me, really early on in our both of our teaching careers, she said, you know, I just, I don't want to teach about race anymore because students are so resistant to it. And I end up having to sort of argue with them and I don't want to do that. And so she just sort of wanted to quit teaching that content and teach other things instead. And that just seemed like such a problem to me. And, and so it seemed like a problem that was solvable. And that's why I wanted to write about it. And you talk in the book about how 75% of college instructors are white, and at your particular institution, about 86% of the students in your classes are going to be white. Um, and the book very clearly says, notes from a white professor. Um, how is it that white professors 
end up being the ones teaching about race and racism to white students? Well, you know, sometimes they're not. So there, there's, uh, I mean, there, I don't know if I've seen actual numbers on this. Maybe there was one study, but, you know, it has been shown that a lot of times the teaching of race and racism gets sort of in a default way given to instructors of color, especially women. Um, and there's also, there is very good research on this showing that um, for instructors of color, they get a lot more pushback. Uh, they get a lot more um, questioning of their credentials, that sort of thing. So, you know, a lot of times it's not necessarily white instructors that are teaching it, but I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's important for anyone to teach it if they feel comfortable teaching it and they have uh, the ability to do so. But I think it's important for white instructors to teach it, or it can be, uh, given that they are qualified and have the right knowledge and understanding, and also some humility to understand that um, if you're white, you know, you can have a very strong scholarly understanding of race and racism, a very strong understanding of how those play out in people's lives, but you don't have the sort of visceral lived experience of it. And I think it's important to have that humility as a white person teaching about this content. But in some ways, I feel like it's incumbent upon white instructors to take this on because, as I said, for instructors of color, there's a lot more questioning of credentials. There's a lot more microaggressions that happen from students towards instructors. And so as white instructors, I think um, it's important for us to do that work. And, and I think if you're qualified and you have some humility around the limits of your knowledge, it's a really good thing for white instructors to do that. I mean, in some ways, there's, there's certainly plenty of research from sociology that shows that when in-group members, and so if we were thinking about race, here's the group, and we're thinking about in-group, um, if, if in-group members are the ones doing the teaching, uh, it may be more effective. And I've never studied that empirically. Like, I don't know that anyone has studying white instructors versus students of color with white students understanding. But just given what we know about the ways in which people are sometimes more likely to trust people from their in-groups, it seems like an important responsibility, or it can be, again, if those white instructors have the right knowledge and have some humility around the limits of what they can know. And so you wrote this book, you say more on how to teach rather than what to teach. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how important it is to, to be able to do this. And yet a lot of what you just said that so many white professors feel they don't know how, um, or that it's just too uncomfortable. And so they see a way they can remove it really from the discussion and still teach their course anyway. And you gently but firmly press back against that in the book, um, citing some examples of, of colleagues who said, for example, you know, in film studies, I can just go ahead and teach this course without dealing with race and racism, and it will be more sustainable for that particular professor to do it. Um, and you mentioned some people who are very precarious in um, academia, for example, um, people who don't have tenure, people who are contingent, faculty, people who are adjuncts, that because when you tackle this in the classroom, there is going to be resistance from students, it's going to be reflected in your course evaluations. Can you talk a bit about how your book helps professors push through that? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to provide, you know, when you think about teaching 
development, I think you have to sort of make sure that you give enough strategy because people need specific strategies, but also some overarching ideas to sort of aim towards so that you're not just necessarily, I mean, you, ha- you need to cover content, but so that you're not just doing that, you're, that you're doing it with a goal in mind. So the way I start the book is to talk about how it's extremely important to think about what the definition of racism is and, and trying to help move students towards a broader definition that is not just individualistic, that is not just racism is about good or bad people, um, and being good means you're non-racist, and being um, bad means you're racist, and sort of that individually based definition of, of racism is about people being individually mean to other individual people, and instead to think about it in a structural and systemic way, in whatever way that shows up in your particular discipline, right? So so that's one thing. Is So it's not specifically what to teach, but it's a goal to aim towards of broadening out that definition, because as I say in the book, that really does help students to take the whole thing a little less personally. It doesn't mean we're not responsible for our role in the system, but it, it helps to free students up, all of us up really, especially as white people, to think about this more and to take more responsibility for it by seeing that it's not just us individually. It's also this larger system that we are a part of, that we didn't ask to be a part of, but we are. And so we can see that for what it is. And that in, in some ways is very liberating in some ways. And then in addition to that sort of overarching goal, um, and I guess there's one other, the other big, I, th- I think, overarching goal that I wrote about is is being compassionate, being honest, honest always and accurate and not sugarcoating anything about the realities of racism and how terrible it is, but but being compassionate in that and understanding that students aren't going to know this stuff. They don't get a lot of this in K-12. Um, and, and our entire society is set up to sort of de- deny a lot of racism. And so being compassionate with students in the struggle that they're having to get this. So you have those two sort of overarching goals and then just lots and lots of specific strategies like Here's what you can do for yourself so that you don't feel burned out. Here's what you can do in the classroom to try to create that compassion and create a sense of belonging amongst your students. Here's some ways to think about ground rules. Here's some way to think about discussion rules and how to structure assignments and stuff like that. So I try to bounce between those things, those sort of two big overarching ideas, and then enacting them through specific strategy. And you you talk about uh, an analogy that I thought was really um, helpful. You said that a lot of people come into courses about race or racism with all their pre-existing ideas and values and information, which is understandable. They've, they've come in knowing what they know, using information that they got from the sources that they had available, and that K-12 uh, structures aren't really set up to, to teach um, the factual uh, information. And so a lot of your students come in with the idea that um, it's about bad apples, certain individuals who are bad apples. And you said to reframe it as the idea that they're bad barrels and the barrels are the system that all the apples are in. Um, Can you unpack for us um, the difference between prejudice and racism? Yeah, sure. I think it's important. And I think it's useful too. I'll just say for students to have those two different words because especially racism is just this word that so much gets, um, you know, projected onto and it's used in a really weird way by some, by people. Sometimes it's used very 
loosely in the media. And so I think it gets confusing. So prejudice is the idea of that's the individual piece of this. So that's enacting. I, I think of racism really um, as ideas, right? So it's idea, the idea that one group is, one racial group is inferior or superior to another one. And so prejudice is enacting that idea in your individual behavior. So favoring people, um, some people over others, favoring white people over people of color, let's say in job situations or, uh, you know, any other situation, um, retail, things like that being more uh, suspecting of people of color. I work with uh, most of my students have jobs uh, outside of school. A lot of them work in retail. Many of them have told me over the years, I've heard so many stories about how they were told specifically to profile people of color in their work, um, to make sure that they kept an eye on people of color in whatever store or whatever they were working in. And so that, that individual enactment of that behavior, that's prejudice. And it can happen implicitly. So I, I definitely cover the implicit attitudes work as part of prejudice. It may be um, relatively automatic and happen without a lot of conscious awareness, but it's still an individually enacted way of, of, of acting out that, that idea, that idea that some people are more valuable than others, frankly. Racism has, has more to do with how those ideas are played out in a larger, at a larger level. So the ways in which we tend to think about neighborhoods, for example, as bad or good, and, and we put more investment and more resources into neighborhoods based on the racial composition of those neighborhoods. Obviously, that has effects on those people within those, those individual people, but that enactment is happening at a larger level and the laws and policies that allow for some neighborhoods, for example, to get more funding than others or school districts or even just the way the whole school funding model is set up so that it relies on property taxes, which means that it's inherently going to be tied to the segregation that is endemic in our society, which was built by policy and law that said these people are more valuable and important than those people. And it has an effect on prejudice, right? Because if you're growing up, and all of us have, <laughs> if you grow up and you see these neighborhoods are the ones that get investment, these are the ones that don't, this is the good school, this is the bad school. I certainly was taught all of that as a child growing up. Um, then that's going to affect your individual prejudices because it can't not. You see this is what the larger society deems to be valuable. This is what the larger society deems to be less valuable. And so then that has an effect, obviously, on prejudice. So these two levels inform each other because individuals, um, of course, make and write laws and policies. So these two pieces are, are in conversation and, and in connection with each other, obviously. But it's really helpful to be able to see the difference between them because sometimes people can, often people can very unthinkingly participate in racist systems without recognizing them as such or not recognizing the effects of those systems. You talk about this as an important threshold concept that you need students to be able to cross over this threshold of understanding in order to really do the learning that's required in classes that focus on understanding race and racism. Can you tell us what a threshold concept is, what that term means? 
Yeah, it refers to, it um, was originally developed by, I think, Meyer and Land. I think that's, I'm getting that reference right. But what they meant when they talked about that was basically sort of like a portal. So it's like once you cross the threshold of that portal, you just can't see things differently. You, you can't go back to your prior understanding. So what I argue is that once we help people to see this larger system and once they understand the manifestations of that. So for example, the to go back to the neighborhood idea, I mean, that originally happened starting in the 1930s. There were laws that were written that specifically said, um, these were government policies that said, you know, these neighborhoods will get funding and mortgages and we will back mortgages for these neighborhoods and these neighborhoods will not. This was in the, like I said, in the 1930s. And so those, um, those laws and policies then have, have played out over time through all sorts of other systems and it continues to this day in the way that home financing works and it's much easier to get in those sort of white neighborhoods if you're a white person than it is if you're a person of color. So anyway, that once you see that and once you see what I've seen with students is once you see that and you see those laws and policies and the knock-on effects that they have all of these years later, um, it's hard to sort of unsee that because you you have to then see like how those neighborhood effects affect the individual people. So a threshold is just something that sort of once you cross over and once you have that understanding, it's difficult for you to go back and then say, oh, no, there is no systemic. There's There are no systemic problems. And what I see in my students is that like once they see it in one domain, so like the housing, for example, then they see it in other spaces too. So education and healthcare and um, lots of other things. It's difficult. It is really difficult. And I'm not the only one who's written about this. Stephen Brookfield has written about this too um, in a couple of places when he's written about teaching about race that thinking structurally or systemically is a hard thing. Sociologists, like if you talk to people who teach sociology for a living, they will talk about this, the difficulty of helping students to think in the structural way. So I think threshold concepts are difficult and every discipline seems to have them. And I'm blanking now on some of my other disciplinary colleagues and what their threshold concepts are, but I know they exist. I, I mean, I think maybe one example is in statistics. I don't teach it, but it's an important part of my field. Um, the stats teachers in my department, I think they would say that one big threshold concept that is difficult for their students to get, but once they get it, they usually it usually sticks is what tests to use for what analysis, because you can teach students to use all sorts of different statistical tests, but really the important thing is to know when to use which one. So the formulas are fine. I mean, most of us don't even do the formulas because we just plug it into a computer program that does it for us. But the real trick is knowing which one do you apply to which data set. And so I think they would argue that's the threshold concept that once students get it, they usually can stick with it. But if they don't get it, it's much harder. So in order to help students cross over this threshold, you give professors reading this book a lot of uh, tools for how to set up the classroom environment in ways that students are open to doing the transformative work that this course is designed to do. Um, and you, you urge professors to accept students at their starting point, to accept them where they are. And a lot of students, as you pointed out, have come in with personal tools and not an understanding of systemic issues and institutional issues. They've really 
developed tools as a person and understood themselves as an individual. And so they can come in and say, I'm not personally prejudiced. I'm not personally racist. And you have to get them over that threshold to understand that this course is about something so much more. One of the reasons you pointed out that students are resistant um, to being able to do this is a mindset they've been taught called colorblindness. Can you talk about how giving students this personal concept of colorblindness is actually an impediment that professors really have to be able to deal with in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, the the whole notion of colorblindness, it's, it's, it's pretty much, I think, for many people in the United States, it is sort of the dominant ideology when it comes to race. There's this idea that if we just don't pay attention to it, if we don't notice it, if we don't teach children about race, like if we don't mention anybody's race, they'll never notice it. It's built on this false idea that there are no differences in how people are treated and there are no differences in outcomes by race, which is not true. We still have a lot of discrimination in this country and we have a lot of disparate treatment and unequal outcomes by race. But the idea is that if we don't notice it or talk about it, if we try to be colorblind, if I try to pretend I can't see people's race, then I won't be prejudiced. And again, uh, this presumes no systemic difference, then then we'll be fine. You know, the I think John Roberts was famous for saying like, the way to end discriminating based on race is to stop discriminating by race. And he was using that justification to strike down a school integration plan. And so it's a, it's a very simplistic notion that we're past all the disparate outcomes. And even if there are disparate outcomes, they're based on people's behavior, um, individual behavior. So it's, it's all fine. So what I try to do with students is to point out that 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 systemic piece is there, but and I do that in a variety of ways by providing a lot of evidence, giving, you know, giving that evidence in particular kinds of ways, like through stories, for example, um, and stories that sort of bounce between the person and the and the larger system that the person is within. I have a couple of uh, really great uh, pieces that I use for that, and that helps students start to see how being colorblind is detrimental because there really is no way not to notice race. I also talk a little bit about um, and cover a little bit about how quickly children learn race, even as their parents may not want to talk about this, but this happens especially with white children. Parents don't want to talk about it. They don't want to bring it up. But the evidence shows that the children learn it really quickly. I mean, because it is important in our society. So I try to point out the sort of way in which we try to have it both ways and pretend that race isn't something white people, especially try to pretend that race isn't a thing, that racism isn't a thing, but it's, it's happening. And so children are learning it, they're absorbing it. And when their parents don't talk about it, they assume that their parents are on board with that racism as well. There's really good evidence that that happens, especially for white kids. And so that's the way in which I try to sort of point out the, the problems with that with that idea around colorblindness and how it actually ends up reinforcing and perpetuating the bias that exists. One of the things you caution professors about is allowing students to engage in debate about is, is racism an issue? Is there such a thing as racism or, or debating the colorblindness uh, philosophy that so many of them have been raised with? Um, can you help us understand why um, going after misinformation in the classroom time can be a trap and why debating things um, 
can have a, a true downside for the learning experience? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the the issue there is that it's so easy. It's so easy, I think, to turn something like this into like, well, we have to look at both sides, which is always, always just too simplistic. I mean, I don't know of very many issues where there are only two sides. And it also ignores the role of evidence, which is really important because I'm always, first and foremost, a social scientist. I'm a psychologist, a social psychologist. And so for me, and what I'm trying to help students understand is that the way we evaluate claims is based on the evidence. If I set something up as a debate around the existence of racism, now you could debate other things where there's evidence that, you know, you you have evidence for, again... I resist this, but like the two sides idea, like that might be more useful. But if you know, as an instructor, as I do, that there is no way that colorblindness is a good way to to deal with racism, because again, there's no evidence that it works or that it's effective. In fact, it's all the evidence is in the other direction. Then you're helping to perpetuate that misinformation in the guise of pretending to be fair and balanced, but you're not being fair because you're not being fair to the evidence and you're helping to reinforce this false notion. And so you're really not educating anybody um, at that point. You're just sort of reinforcing that idea. And I mean, there is some, the, the evidence around this is starting to get a little bit more interesting um, in terms of, of what happens, but there has been some work that shows, and I cite some of it, that you can really get a lot of backfire and you can really reinforce a lot of misinformation if you continually bring it up and mention it. And and so instead, what you want to do is just focus on the real story. So instead of saying, you know, some people say there's no racism and some people say there is, instead you just focus on what there is evidence for. And so that's what I always, always come back to is what does the data tell us to the extent that we can know what does the data tell us and just try to tell that story as much as possible. Because otherwise, I'm even by bringing it up, in some way, I'm reinforcing and replanting that idea that maybe it's not, you know, I'm making it debatable by debating it. And it's really, again, the evidence is that it is not debatable. It's a a similar thing with climate change. It's a similar thing with evolution. I mean, a lot of people that I that I work with, um, across the university and that I've worked with from other universities, I mean, they have very similar struggles. And so I I think the advice holds for for all of us who teach things that are difficult. You talk to us about how people generally like to perceive themselves positively and as competent individuals. And they're coming into a class about race and racism um, with a full set of values and feelings. And we try to bury them with facts to the contrary. How do we, how do we meet them where they are without shaming and blaming them? And uh, how do we effectively present them with facts? As scholars, I'll speak for myself. If someone has a misconception, I feel like if I just give them a buffet of information, it'll be so helpful for them. And psychology tells us again and again that when people are having a strong feeling or a strong value, facts alone won't change their mind. Yeah, it, it's really, really true. I mean, we're um, you see this all the time, especially now, especially always, I guess. Um, you know, you 
what you, I think what you want to do is, first of all, you don't make it about them as individuals because it's really not, again, that larger structure idea. So it's, it's not about you as an individual person being bad or wrong or whatever it is. It's just you didn't necessarily have an opportunity to learn these things. So I think one big thing is just making sure that you always focus on that larger system idea, um, that it's it's not a personal thing, that it makes sense that people wouldn't know these things. I mean, that's probably one of the main things that I, I feel like I end up saying so much when I teach about this is like, most of you didn't learn this um, in college. And, and I think one thing that really helps is that I use a lot of discussion because what I find is that it's really useful for them to hear from each other because then they can hear that other people are struggling too. That helps to normalize that struggle to make it seem more like realistic and something that of course they feel this way. Of course, this is hard. I start the class. I just did this yesterday in my first course of the semester by talking about how often people feel um, guilty or helpless or angry as they learn this stuff. Because what I'm trying to do is forewarn them and, and normalize that emotional experience to the greatest extent that I possibly can. And then in presenting those facts, you really want to try to do it in a way that's as relatable as possible. So I've had to learn to like not just bury people in content because it's not useful, as you say, and it's so tempting to do because we know so much but instead to try to really pick out and curate, this is the stuff that's really going to resonate. This is the stuff that's going to be funny or interesting, or it, it's going to be a story. I mean, stories are very useful in, in this sort of work where they can read about an individual person who exemplifies a larger trend. And so in that way, people are much, much more open to it. There's a lot of good research on empathy and how people are more empathic in response to reading stories about people because they can sort of put themselves in the place of that narrator that they're reading about. And so I try to employ all those things as a way to get around that resistance because you're right, it is quite difficult and you're dealing with people's very strongly held beliefs and values and things that play out in their families. And so you, you have to be, um, again, firm about it, but as gentle as possible, I think. And you say that in the book, you say we can confront the realities of racism without being confrontational in the classroom. You've um, mentioned opening it up for discussion, and yet the discussion time and the things that were said were some of the reasons why your colleagues said, I can't, I can't have this content within my, my course anymore. I can't handle it. How as professors can we moderate a conversation so it does not become a debate and so it goes back into the content of the, of the course itself. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes a lot of energy. So, um, so, you know, an important thing to do is to have some good sort of ground rules for discussion. I've, I have very rarely just a handful of times. And actually the worst time I experienced, I was not even, we were not even talking about race. We were talking about addiction. I was teaching senior seminar in psychology. Um, I think you just have to really have good rules and structure to your discussion as much as possible. So I ask students to post their questions ahead of time so that I can see how are they thinking and feeling in response to this content, you know, whatever the piece was that I gave them to read or listen to, how are they feeling in response to this? What are the, 
what are the difficulties that I'm going to encounter? Where are the places where people are resisting or pushing back and not, not seeing it? How are those difficulties shared across different students? How can I help them see that other people have the same sort of misunderstanding and try to deal with that more effectively? Whose questions can I ask that will get at that misconception in a way that that helps to um, debunk it a little bit. So I think it takes a lot of work. You really have to structure how the discussion is going to go. If you just go in and you don't you don't incentivize the reading. So that's one thing. So maybe they don't do the reading. That can go off the rails because students are using whatever their sort of naive understandings are. And, and then you're not working from a common base of evidence. So that's one problem. So incentivizing the reading so that people do it. Two, structuring how they're going to participate. So asking for those questions ahead of time, which you can also grade. So that handles both of those issues there. So you know how they're feeling. You can ask them their questions, again, rather than saying, just tell me what you thought, because you're not going to get anything in response to that. Um, also using other techniques like bouncing between smaller groups and larger groups so that you allow students to be more comfortable speaking to each other. A lot of students, it's a very high bar to ask a student to speak out in a group of, you know, the whole class. So like my class has uh, about 30 students in it. Asking students to speak in front of 30 other students can be really scary about anything really, but especially about this. So structuring the way that they're going to participate. First, you're going to do this. You're going to answer the specific question. Then we're going to come back as a group and talk about your answers to that question. All of those things will help you to keep things moving along um, in the direction that you want them to go rather than just sort of getting off track. And you remind us in the book that there's a gap between inside and outside language. That's the heart of all expertise and really at the heart of all learning. Um, but it's also one of the challenges of teaching a topic that people come in with assumed knowledge about. They have an assumption that they know the inside knowledge and they actually have the outside knowledge. Can you talk to us about that sort of chasing its tail thing and how we, how we straighten it out? Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard. Um, I, you know, I think we just have to be aware ourselves of what some of that jargon is, and and the ways in which we take things for granted that other people don't understand. So, like again, to go back to the systemic sort of idea, like. I use that word a lot, like thinking structurally, thinking systemically, thinking probabilistically. I use all these sort of psychology phrases and I have to always remind myself to unpack that as much as possible and to try to use plainer language, try to use as many examples as possible, as many metaphors and analogies as possible to help people see what those things actually are and how they actually work. So for, you know, sort of the systemic piece, like, okay, what is an example of that that would lead then to an individual problem and trying to link those two things together. That's a way of getting from the, the inside language that I would use, the insidery language that I would use as a psychologist and help pull it down to a, a level that a student is more likely to be familiar with and to understand. So trying to come up with examples, like I said, analogies, good content that helps to illuminate these things and, and just trying as much as possible to remember, this is something I take for granted that I know that these students, there's no reason why they would know. Why would they know this? They don't understand this. I mean, we see this in really simple examples too, like the idea of office hours just for college students. Like, what does that mean? You know, if you have brand new first year students coming in, especially first generation college students, 
why would they know what an office hour is? That doesn't happen in high school. That's a very insidery sort of thing. And so things like that, being able to see where are we taking for granted someone's knowledge, which is really easy to do when we have more power than other people, which we do as instructors. We have more power than our students and because we grade them. And so recognizing the ways in which my power and my expertise are not allowing me to see things from their perspective. And that feeds into part of what you talk about in chapter five, which is the great importance of setting realistic expectations for the students learning in this class to be mindful of where they're starting from, where you need them to go to, and is that something you can do in one semester? And what are the tools you're going to use for doing that? And then understanding that no learning is a straightforward progression. You keep reminding us that we need to accept students where they are and where they're coming from. Um, can you talk to us about some key ways to set realistic expectations for learning in a course like this? Yeah, I, I think it's tough because, again, it's so tempting to want to just throw as much content in as possible because it's it's fun and it's interesting and we love it, you know, so we want to share it with them. Um, so I think being clear with yourself about how much can I actually cover what what is most important to cover? What are my most important goals? I mean, I went through my course very carefully this past summer and really tried to do that for myself. Like, what is it that I can expect them to know? And it's a constant process. Like, it's a constant process of trying to really think through what can they learn and what can I what can I do for them um, in, over the course of a semester? And then secondly, reminding myself that it is not a straightforward progression. It's, um, there's a, that great word that I stole from someone else and I cite it in there about the metastable progression. So, you know, you think students have learned something, but then you see this digression backwards. And so it's sort of two steps forward and three steps back, and then you forward and back, forward and back. And that's going to happen throughout the semester. So being clear with that yourself, being clear with them that people are, we're going to make mistakes. People are going to say things that maybe they regret or that other people are upset by, or, you know, just those sorts of things too. Just getting everybody to the same spot of, that this is a process and being honest with yourself about this is how much I can expect to do and what I can actually, where I can actually expect them to get. And that kind of leads into chapter six, which is where you tell us to set realistic content choices. How much can you really do with these students in this amount of time? And you open with an anecdote where you're talking to a colleague and it's the start of a new semester and you're lamenting it's the start of the new semester and you're missing the students who you just finished with the semester before because they had reached this point where they had crossed the threshold and they can't unsee it anymore. They see things differently now and they can't unsee it. And that's where you needed to get them. And now you've got these new students who are at square one and you're lamenting this to your colleague. Can you talk about both setting realistic content choices and, and being realistic with ourselves every time we have to reset at a new semester. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think just being honest about it and remembering that like it's a process and um, that it's, I mean, I've had to have this talk with myself this week as we, we started teaching that, that like I, I need to um, remember that it's always scary. Remember that it's always I'm, I always feel unsure every time I teach this, trying to be mindful of the ways in which that nervousness and anxiety is 
I'm feeling it and, and recognizing it and being realistic about it. Um, and just sort of trusting that I've, I've managed to do this before. This has worked. Really reading your evaluations and looking at what worked for the students in the past and what didn't. I mean, not everything works for them. Um, and so, you know, it's not like you did it perfectly before. So why should you expect to do it perfectly again? But reading those those evals, trying to take their suggestions, making sure you ask to do those evaluations if you don't have to as part of your as part of your regular process, not everybody does every semester, but asking it anyway and asking about things that you want to know, like, what was it like to read this much? Were you able to keep up, you know, letting that stuff be anonymous so that they really tell you what works for them and what doesn't so that you have a good idea of, of what it's like, what's likely to work going into the next semester and really trying to think as concretely as possible with yourself when you're setting up things like assignments and reading lists. Like, are, you know, are you really going to do that? One, one really nice thing, I didn't talk about this in the book because I hadn't, I don't think I'd fully discovered it at that point, but the course workload estimator, um, which is a great tool that people can Google it, uh, you know, workload estimator 2.0, I think is the best way to get to it. And it helps you see like, how long will it take students to read this much? Like, is this a realistic amount? You know, how is it going to feel for me every single week to grade, you know, X number of things? You know, am I going to actually be able to do that? And trying to be as honest with yourself as possible about what you can really do and what you can't. Early on in the book, you tell us that this is not a book about inclusive teaching or inclusive pedagogy. It's a book about how to teach race and racism effectively and with compassion. And you also remind us that three quarters of professors are white. And in many uh, campuses, the majority of the students are white. This book helps us teach about race and racism effectively with compassion in all subjects that any white professor is teaching, correct? Yeah. I mean, and I think other people can learn from it too that aren't not necessarily just white, but yeah. So when people feel like I can, I can take that out of that content out of my course, I don't have to do it. This gives them the tools so that they can indeed do it. I hope so. Yeah. And I mean, some of that is inclusive. I mean, there is an overlap. I, I think, um, I mean, ideally all teaching should be as inclusive as possible because you want all students to succeed and that will help to close those gaps that we see between racial, racial and social class and gender and, and all those, those things that we know affect students' ability to perform up to what they should. So, I mean, ideally all teaching really should be inclusive. And I think I have a lot of inclusive stuff in here. It's just inclusive is being inclusive is much more broad than teaching specifically about race and racism. So they're connected, but yeah, they're different. What do you hope this discussion sparks? Um, I hope it sparks people to teach more. I mean, particularly now, as we're seeing uh, basically an assault on teaching about race and racism, um, you know, I think, what is it, 11 or 12 states at this point, as you and I are speaking, have some form of basically legislation that has been passed and several others are considering it that would not allow for the teaching of race and racism in the K-12 and or higher ed system and or, you know, government training for employees. That's dangerous to me. Not not teaching the truth is dangerous um, because we need the truth to be able to move beyond the problems that our society has. And so what I always want is for anything that I... Um, provide to people, any tools or strategies helps people feel more confident to teach the stuff and, and to do so in a way that doesn't 
completely burn them out or completely leave them um, really exhausted and, and leave them dealing with students who are angry and upset and they're angry and upset. I mean, it is a hard thing to do. And so to the greatest extent possible, I want to try to make it easier for people so that they continue to do it because it is incredibly important work. I taped a Brene Brown quote up. It says, truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. Can you talk to us about why we have to keep pushing with the truth? Yeah, because I just don't see how we have any other choice. I mean, I, I like that idea too. And I believe that. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else we get out of the messes that we have created for ourselves without being honest about it. I mean, there, there are so many problems that all of us have, and we have to be honest with ourselves about what those problems are and do our best to understand how we got here and make sense of them so that we can get out of them. Otherwise, we just end up with more inequality and more pain and more, um, you know, ways in which people are not able to live up to the abilities that they have. And that just makes our entire society weaker and less prosperous. And finally, what do you hope this book sparks? Like I said, I just hope that it sparks people to teach more. I really, really want that. Um, I want people to, to teach this and feel confident about doing so, um, so that they will continue. So that's really what I hope it does for people. It provides them a way to do that. Thank you so much for being here today and telling us about your book, Teaching About Race and Racism in the College Classroom, Notes from a White Professor. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to Cindy Kernahan talk with us about her book here on the academic life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.